Miller. On this week's episode of Tiger Turf Talk, we host Mr. Jim Butter, the head grounds person for the Rugby Football Union. This is such a fantastic episode with such great content. Uh, We get into different aspects of what it takes to be a professional, how one can become successful through strong work ethic, and what it takes to maintain a rugby pitch at the highest level in one of the most iconic stadiums in the world, uh, Twitchnam in London. Mr. Butter was phenomenal. He helped us understand what it takes to push through the adversity and work hard and learn how important it is to have a positive outlook, not on just yourself, but on the entire crew that you're working with. And to understand that when it comes to the personalities and the needs of your workers, how much a role you play as a leader. Um, He dives into different uh, experiences he had in his past, um, how he worked through the night in Egypt when he was working with a consulting company uh, because his workers were unable to eat during the day because they were practicing Ramadan. It's just, it's phenomenal to listen to and it's something you guys don't want to miss. It truly was an honor to have him on and we cannot thank him enough for everything that he's done for our kids. We had an absolute blast. Learned so much about turf grass and what it takes to be successful at the highest level. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tiger Turf Talk. Good afternoon, everyone, and good evening. Uh, We have a phenomenal guest on today. We have the head grounds person of the Rugby Football Union, Mr. Jim Jim Batar. Again, I said both names wrong, so I apologize for that. Um, (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm all good. I'm good, Joey. Thank you very much. Well, we can't. You're right. Thank you I think me. I told you it gets worse every time. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was going to say you just pretty much briefed me on how bad these intros are. And I so know. I, I apologize. delivered. Hey, I got I got the rugby football union. That's that's one part, right? Uh, yeah. I well, the, the boss will be happy. My boss will be happy. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> no we actually made the connection over uh, social media and. It, it was uh, sort of just me contacting you and seeing everything that you do and how impressive everything is. Um, what is the name of your uh, stadium? So that I don't get that wrong as well. Uh, so it's Twickenham Stadium. So it's Twickenham. actually, uh, yeah, so it's in a, it's in a um, suburb or district of London. So it's in Southwest London, but yeah, so it's Twickenham the district and obviously the stadium sits within that. So yeah, Twickenham yeah. Stadium. Sounds good. I just, again, I'm not going to say anything because I don't know how to speak. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of to start it off, uh, obviously here in uh, Virginia, over in the U.S., we take care of a, a Bermuda grass base, overseeded uh, ryegrass. Uh, you do a sport that uh, I think the traffic just is exponential compared to what even our professional football does. Um, because there's so much effort and different uh, ways that rugby uh, is played that puts a wear on sort of your turf. What is it that you're doing um, as the groundsman, as the head grounds person um, at such a, a, 
iconic place for the sport of rugby? So, uh, yeah, so with regards to the sport rugby, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very physical, intense game. Um, like I say, with regards to your national football, it's quite centred and runs right down through the middle of the field. So you pretty much know where your wear is going to be. Um, with with uh, rugby, we have generally a good idea because the fly halves, the kickers, they tend to be right footed. So but they tend to send the ball that way. So we tend to have a good idea of where we think the scrums are going to be set. But the, the scrummage in itself is quite unique in the sense that it's uh, it's eight guys on each side and they're, they're pretty much contesting the ball but the, the the kind of traction and the and the weight that goes into that I mean it is a phenomenal amount of um, uh, tolerance that's expected out of the turf uh, and it has to perform each time they do it so at Twickenham it's uh, it's a hybrid turf, so it's stitched. So it's a Deso Grassmaster, which I'm sure you guys are probably familiar with after speaking to a few guys you've had on already. Um, so the structure's there. So it's sound, it's safe as a surface. It's actually just trying to keep the, the grass um, and aid in it to recover after those usages. So it's, um, uh, I'll probably say that's probably the, the harshest part. They tend to train quite intensively as well. So we have what's called captain's runs. So the, the teams, um, they, they get to train the day before the game. Um, so they get an hour on the field and it varies. Sometimes they'll come in and they might just have a walk around the stadium, have a bit of a meeting and a huddle in the middle. And the kickers might just do 20 minutes and just get familiar with the, uh, the, the points behind the goals so they can actually just get themselves sized up in terms of distance and things. Um, and then you get, uh, for instance, like England rugby, the, the, the head coach really likes to have reasonably intensive sessions. So that includes the captain's run. So they'll come out for an hour and they will go for it. So it's it's quite an intensive session in that sense. Um, so, yeah, the sport itself, it's it's a very physical sport. They spend they do spend a lot of time. They do move over the entire field in open play. So that's not so bad. But it is. It's just those set pieces. So line outs um, and and. Uh, scrummaging where they're contesting the ball that's like the really um, kind of hard sort of really hard sort of wear that the pitch will receive um, again it, half of our battle is is actually not you, you're preparing the pitch for the game but it's actually what we try and do afterwards as well so uh, there's loads of um, small things that we try to, to, to kind of get in place on the build up to a game with the aim of being that turf is as strong and as healthy as it can be to be able to withstand the wear first off and then actually be able to recover quite quickly afterwards. Um, so, yeah, we, 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 uh, a lot of it's actually just uh, um, such small, small, small things that we've done kind of dealing with, but it all adds up. So if you imagine a pie chart, I mean, 80, 85% is nice and easy. It's your basic turf maintenance, but then, yeah, it's just the little things that you're trying to just squeeze that little bit extra out of it to get to perfect, which you never get to. Uh, how big is the space? Do you know in comparison to like a, say a football field here in the U.S., um, 160 feet wide versus what would yours be length and width wise? Oh, wow. You're going to start, start going to start talking imperial to me now, aren't you? Sorry. Uh, oh um, my bad. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no worries. <laughs> Don't even go. If I can convert that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what we'll do. We won't worry about the maths too much because mine's absolutely terrible as well. <laughs> um, essentially, it's a hectare. So that's the amount of okay. grass we have. In terms of the 
build itself. It's 120 meters by 70. So it's quite a big space, quite large. Much Uh, larger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that the NFL have actually been at Twickenham. This was before I was there. So this is in 2016, I think it was. Um, and you can actually see that they, that they obviously had to um, make the pitch a lot narrower to, to for, for your guys to <laughs> smash it up. Just run right down the middle, down the middle, down the middle. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you were sort of talking about it right there. Um, how did you arrive at this position? Um, you have an incredible career uh, at different roles, different places. How did you find yourself um, there at Twickenham? If I said that right, I apologize if I didn't. And no, no, that's right, yeah. how have you sort of taken those experiences and sort of transitioned to them uh, there with the rugby, rugby football union? Um, so in terms of how I started in the industry, so, I mean, I guess like a lot of guys over here, I don't know what it's like for, for, for guys over there that you, you think you're going to be a sportsman. That's what you kind of have in your head that you're going to be, uh, you're going to be a professional, uh, well, football player for us over here, soccer for you guys over there, or a rugby player or of some kind. Um, so this is kind of when you realise you're you're nowhere near good enough for the one percent that make it as professional sportsmen. Um, you tend to cling on to something that's at least familiar, um, so you can have your part in it, as it were. Um, so. When I first started out, they, it was an apprenticeship that I started out with when I was 16. So, I mean, uh, I pretty much walked out of school um, and, then, uh, and then started this apprenticeship scheme, which was a day release at college uh, where I did a vocational qualification. And the rest of the time I was actually learning and working on the job, which for me, I think is the best way to do it. Um, I think as much as it's nice to be able to do all the academic studies and and theory and everything I think it's so much different to actually physically see it and work with the turf and actually see what inputs and the reactions you have with that and what might come out of it um so I started at a private school as part of this apprenticeship so that's where I kind of uh learned the ropes as it were um kind of got a bit of a feel for 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 the turf the sports turf and that was mainly cricket that we were working with which is um, it's quite a unique sports surface to look after. Um, it's very much more down to field and data and kind of understanding that. So it's very much uh, you, you walk the wicket and you stick your thumb in the, in the wicket and you're thinking, oh, yeah, start rolling now or it needs a little uh, bit more moisture in there. And the whole it's new ball crazy. game. The, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. We <laughs> it, actually, it, it, in New York, it, when I worked for the Mets, we had a tournament after the World Series and there was this whole install and it's just insane. Sorry, go ahead. I apologize. No, that's fine. Yeah, I know. And, and that, that, that kind of really, um, uh, that really kind of, um, that I got the bug really bad from that. So that was just like, I was really seeing the, the, the inputs and what we were trying to achieve and what we were doing. And, and when it got delivered and having that interaction with the players as well to kind of say, well, actually, is this meeting the, the standard that they're expecting it to be? And, and things like that and and getting a real feel for kind of how that worked and it very much is dark art sort of stuff looking after cricket I, I, I felt it was um, uh, with everything else you can measure it but with cricket it's very much to do with the feel and everything else I mean I think it's changed a little bit now but uh, I'm talking back in sort of 96 so it's going back a few years um, 
uh, so I did that. I was there for about three, three and a half years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It was a great kind of introduction to sports turf and uh, amenity horticulture in general. So there's still landscaping and tree work and things to work. So I really got a good taste of everything that the industry had to offer in that sense. And it was all on one site. So um, I, I got to get a real good feel for it. And uh, through college, my network at college, I met, I met a guy who said there potentially might be a job coming up at a professional football club. Soccer, I'm going to say football. You know what I mean, though. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I, I had the opportunity. I thought, well, I'm going to give that a go. It feels like a quite a natural step to make. So we'll just thought we'll get it. Uh, I'm a, I loved football back then. So um, I was only 19 at the time when I got that job. Um, and I went there as an assistant groundsman. There was a couple of training fields and a, and a stadium pitch. And it was a nice little setup. Um, and I thought it was a very natural next step to make. Um, I was there again for about three and a half years. Um, again, really had an opportunity to start to maybe hone my skills a little bit, um, really get a good understanding of trying to work with professional sportsmen and get a bit of an understanding of the level and the, stand, uh, and the standard that they're trying to achieve. So um, I went from assistant groundsman to grounds manager in about three and a half years and more probably more down to circumstance rather than um, uh, my own sort of like um, skill set. Obviously, I fit the bill in the sense of I could do it, but I mean, I was I was 22 when I took over. So, I mean, I, I, I see 22. I mean, I'm 40 now and I look back at 22 and I think, I was just a kid, you know? I literally, I knew nothing about everything. <laughs> so, <it's, laughs> I literally had like a, um, not quite a rabbit in the headlights moment. I, lots of people that know me, I'm quite laid back. I'm very kind of observant and I tend to look into a lot of stuff before I kind of headlong into it. But yeah, on the inside, there was some proper fear going on. And I thought, wow, I'm actually looking after all of this now. Um, and so I did that for around eight or nine months. Again, big, big learning curve, um, operating, working with budgets, um, managing people, which quite frankly is the hardest part of anything when it comes to being a manager is actually working with people. Um, I, I, that's the hardest thing. I say you can control every other element, you know, so, you know, it's, and it, there's factors there that kind of hold it. So it's with resources, finances, et cetera, et cetera people i mean it's just insane you can be working with somebody one day everything's all great you're having a crack you're working hard they can go home something can happen at home you can come in the next day and it's a completely different person <laughs> so it's just like i really had to learn quite quickly how to how to understand people sounds like uh, franco it's, it's it sounds like franco <laughs> the day after school i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh it, it, it was um, that, that for me was quite a bit, a big, big learning curve um, just to kind of understand how people ticked and and what you what you had to show to um, have value in them. And that when you worked hard, um, I, I was very much a, a lead by example. So I was never one of those that kind of just started laying out all the all the responsibilities for everybody else to kind of pick it up. I mean, it, it, if it meant I had to go and pull frost sheets on, um, uh, frost covers, uh, I'll be there at the front. I'll be doing it. So uh, it's just like, right, we've got to get it done. Let's just get it done. And then I found that was probably the best way to work because most people just bought into the process. You're just thinking, right, let's just get this done and then we can go down the pub. 
<laughs> so let's just go get it done. And 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 that sort of um, uh, that's most sort of motivating words I'm sure life. that you have, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you can't drink. <laughs> yes, Frank, yeah. it's not you. Well, yeah, yeah, but you you find your vice eventually. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think that was as much as it's a managerial skill, it's a life skill, you know, being able to work with people and talk to people and communicate and things like that. It's, it's, it's something that you don't just, if you have it from a very young age, you tend to be quite extrovert. I think you tend to be, um, you, you don't really mind what you're saying at the time. Whereas I think if you're an introvert and you have to kind of come out of your shell a little bit, it's so much more difficult to do. Um, and I was quite an introvert, um, I'll be real. I'll be really honest with you. I don't really like people. Um, not if I try to understandable. Not as understandable. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, and that's just my nature. So I'm quite happy in my own company. I'm quite happy just to not socialize if I can help it. Um, so the, 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 there's elements there that you have to really kind of push push those boundaries out there, especially if you're managing people. You've got no choice. You have to do it. And if they're not engaging and helping you to do the work, then the work doesn't get done. And then you get asked some serious questions from your boss while the work hasn't been done. So um, I guess the premise is the, essentially once you know, <laughs> once you know what's actually at stake, you tend to, you tend to make it work, you know, you make it happen. Um, so yeah, I spent a good three and a half years there, made up to grounds manager, like I said, and then um, my boss that I actually took over at that point, he'd gone to Tottenham Hotspur football club. So he'd gone down there uh, as um, uh, he was looking after the stadium itself, just the stadium pitched, nothing else. And uh, he said, look, there might be there might be a role that might be coming up that I'd like you to go for. So we'd worked together already. We'd done two, two and a half years working together. So again, anyway, we had to go through that whole process, um, did the interviews. Um, and I think there was some ridiculous, like 100 applicants went for this job. And I thought, well... Uh, this, and interestingly for me, it was a decision made on the basis being that it was a really interesting job. Once the once the once the the, the job was offered, just to give you a bit of a context. So I was I was I was a grounds manager at like a League Two club, which is mid tier professional tier over here in England, and then obviously Tom Hotspur, huge club, um, even back then in like two thousand and three, Premier League, right top of the tree. That's it. So I had to get this uh, balance in my head was going from League Two to Premier League. But the flip side was going from a grounds manager and actually taking a couple of steps back and going back to being an assistant groundsman again. Um, financially, it actually wasn't any different. Um, if anything, I was probably going to um, take a bit of a hit because I, I don't live anywhere near London. I would have had to. I, I was commuting in. So that was a decision I made. It was like, right, I'm going to have to just take the hit here because... I saw it as too good an opportunity for me personally uh, and professionally to not do. So, you know, sometimes you have to make a choice in life and it tends to type, well, actually, this is the sacrifice that I'm willing to make to see if this works or not. And it's it's calculated. It's not necessarily a leap of faith, but um, you do just have to almost take with the gut feeling, just thinking, right, I'm just going to have to give this a go. So... I got the job, I got off the job and I took it. So I started in December, 2003, which 
Jesus, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, I, I hear you. I don't know why, but I keep feeling like 2000s are like, yeah, they're right there. It's not that far. And it's now like 20 years. So, yeah, I understand. Uh, honestly, I listen to some music comes on the radio and I'm thinking, yeah, absolute banger of a tune. And then they tell me the year and I, I have a inside. <laughs> I really cry inside. Yeah, no, like, I yeah, hear this, you. This is massive a, hit in 2005. A- I'm like, no, that's not true. That's like a couple of years ago. What are you talking about? There's a playlist oh, that comes yeah. up on my phone and it says the the hits from the tens. I'm like, oh crap, it's the twenties. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah. the tens are over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, the whole context of time, 2003. Jesus. Um so yeah, anyway, I went down there and um, again, this was, so uh, um, the previous club, it was a, what was called a fiber sand construction, which I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with. So it was a very early form of reinforced um, brew zone that we had over here in the UK. So essentially it was a very coarse sand and it had um, fiber ameliorated into it. And then but essentially it was leveled out, flattened down, and then they seeded into it. Um, absolutely great when you had grass on it. As soon as the grass started to wear out, uh, the moisture management became very difficult and it tended to fl- uh, fluff up and kick out. And then we had all manner of issues once we started to lose grass coverage. Moving to, to Tottenham Hotspur, that's when I had my first experience with the Desso Grassmaster, so a hybrid system. Um, 2003 was... Um, 2003 was BL before lights so we had no grow lights in 2003 and um, so White Hart Lane which is um, Tottenham's old stadium obviously they've uh, built and moved into a new one since Um, it was actually not a big stadium in terms of its capacity it was only 37,500 capacity Um, but the actual proximity and the build of the, the stadium, the stands were really, really close to the pitch, like really close. So essentially, uh, I think if you could stand on any of the white lines and I think if you leant over far enough, you could you could actually just touch one of the fans in the front row. So that's how close it was. Um, absolutely brilliant for atmosphere. Uh, uh, absolutely epic for atmosphere. Really, really bad for growing grass. Um, it was probably one of the most hospitable places I've ever grown grass. And I've been in quite a few stadiums now, quite a few different climates, extreme heat, extreme cold, et cetera, et cetera. White Hart Lane was just a battle every day to keep grass coverage um, to the point where it actually kind of, you, you were getting sleepless nights trying to think, well, hold on a minute. I know I'm just going to start losing grass here. It's like inevitable. <laughs> and there was nothing you could do about it before the lights came. You were literally just watching this pitch slowly deteriorate. And there was absolutely nothing you could do. If anything, you had to do less to try and maintain the grass coverage because every time you took traffic on there, another grass blade fell off and then a plant died. <laughs> it's like, well, this is going to be a painful winter again. Um, fortunately, I only had to put up with that for a couple of seasons. And in 2005 slash six, um, we got our first lot of grow lights and that made a significant difference. Um, we tended to find our south end for whatever reason, never, it, it, it never really kind of even established itself. So we tended to find it it'd grow. And then it, it was trying so hard to just stay alive that it never really kind of established itself. So um 
it, it, with, with the grow lights coming in, that made a big difference. Um, 2003, went as assistant groundsman. By 2005, I was stadium head groundsman. Um, and then I held that role until Wild Lane shut in 2017. So I saw that all through that period. So it was quite a hot streak for Spurs at the time. They're, all, they're, they're always kind of regarded as the... Uh, the, the, the sleeping giants of football. There's going to be loads of people that might watch this and go, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but actually being on the inside and actually seeing how the club was run and how it was all trying to operate and what the what their aim was, you could see they were, what they were trying to achieve. And uh, through that whole period, I was there. So I got there in 2003. They finished 14th. They, were, they, were, they, they literally just got out of relegation within about two months of the season finishing. And uh, from there on out, they just slowly worked their way up the league and to the point where they ended up with European football. Um, so towards the end, the season started to get really congested. So we ended up having quite a lot of um, games. Um, and because of the environment that it's in, there's a certain tolerance of usage it can take before it just starts to really start to struggle. So if you were to go onto YouTube and you had a look at some of those games at Wild Lane, um, and you range, and you can see, you can pretty much pinpoint the point where it's like right there. You can see where they're struggling to try and keep grass there now. And it was just one of those things. It was just uh, such an inhospitable stadium, um, uh, like I say, to grow grass in. Um, 2017, uh, left Spurs. So I've been there quite a significant amount of time, almost 14 years. So it was, it was a long stint being at one place. Um then I kind of took the opportunity to try and step right out of my comfort zone and thought, well, if I'm going to do it, now's the time. Um, so in 2017, um, I, I had uh, an opportunity to go to a small island in the Mediterranean called Malta. Um, and they needed some help with their stadium pitch. Um, they've made a big investment, but from a maintenance perspective and just having that infrastructure in place, it wasn't there. So it's almost like they ran before they could walk. Um, so I went in there as a, as a consultant and slash head groundsman, almost pretty much parachuted in to just try and get everything set up and uh, get all the infrastructure in place for that. So was, I spent a, a good eight months there just um, getting everything in place for them. So whoever came in after me had the opportunity just to pretty much pick the baton up and carry on. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, that's in the transitional zone. So that was uh, Bermuda grass. And then we switched to, to rye grass once we did uh, the international break, which is around October time, October, November. Um, that was a heavily used pitch. That was, um, so essentially that was getting used for maybe five times a week. Um, and it was surprising how well that, that that for me that kind of opened my eyes up to warm season grasses in it and that the capability of warm season grasses the fact that it can be absolutely smashed to bits and recover so quickly um and it just keeps going it just doesn't stop um which uh, it was it's interesting you hear a lot of things you uh, I study a lot I research a lot but when you actually physically see it and work with it it's just completely different that changes everything so uh, no appreciation for warm season grasses for me from that point onwards. Um, and then I've got an opportunity to work with it. I've always worked with cool season grasses. So I saw that as a great uh, opportunity for me to, uh, again, develop some skills that I wouldn't necessarily have ever got if I'd stayed in the UK or in Northern Europe. So um, 
that again, that was a re really, really good time for me. Uh, made some friends, still speak to them now that are working out there. Um, and then after Malta, I had an opportunity to go um, become a, uh, a consultant for a company called ProPitch, which is very data driven. So essentially, it's there. there's a there's a system that they've they've kind of created, and it's all set with data set points and parameters. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. So essentially, there's there, there's uh, fifteen parameters that are essentially measured. Um, this measurement then gives it a score, and then that score is essentially what's presented in a report. So it it gives you and there's parameters that they've got to work within these these tests. So infiltration is one, traction is one, um, hardness is one. Uh, sort of um, grass coverage density is another. Um, so we, we go through this whole process and they have to fall within certain parameters to be scored and they're weighted a certain way as well. Um, so I came in to do that and, and, and we worked as part of a team, very small team, and we, we were kind of um, doing some serious air miles because we were pretty much international. So we, we had to, we were either getting parachuted into somewhere to help try and fix something. <laughs> Or we were helping to helping to do tournament delivery. It wasn't very often I came in somewhere right at the very beginning and got to put all these processes in place. Uh, nine times out of ten, you literally just came in and went, "Wow!" Uh, literally, the, it's not just a wheels falling off; it's normally all the wheels have fallen off and the cars on fire. So <laughs> that was rough. Ah, <laughs> oh, trust me, it was some. Uh, it, it was um, again that's really kind of pushing yourself out of that comfort zone because you're trying to pull on everything you've learned and you're trying to implement something as fast as you can to try and obviously rectify that. And it goes against a little bit trying to influence and manipulate nature um, in a kind of very healthy, dynamic way that you would normally would do. It was just a case of you had to really, really quickly identify what was wrong. Uh, inevitably, it was normally about half a dozen things. <laughs> And you had to literally just prioritize, right, right, where do we start? What's the easiest thing to fix first? And, and you literally just went through the list. And if you had two weeks to do it, you had two weeks to do it. If you had six weeks, you had six weeks. So that was some of the things that we kind of had to work with. And then the other part of the job was um, going around and carrying out assessments um, uh, that people had asked for, and whether that be through third parties that just wanted to get a bit of an idea of what that pitch was performing like. Um, and sometimes it might be a case of if a construction company, for instance, had had a pitch built um, and then there were some issues, i.e. from the maintenance side, then we might get asked to come in and do carry out an independent assessment just to see what the actual issues were, if there were any. Um, and on the flip side of that was tournament deliveries. Um, so we were kind of um, part of the group that was uh, awarded the contract for the UEFA finals. So UEFA Champions League final. Um, the Women's Champions League final, the Europa League final, uh, and a Super Cup final. Um, so we, 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 we kind of basically worked and we got parachuted in. We got to work with the grounds team for the entire year. So as soon as it was announced which venue got it, we engaged with them straight away. And then the whole idea was is that we just kind of supported and advised UEFA um, and the groundsmen on behalf of UEFA to make sure that pitch was delivered for the finals. Um, Again, that was a crazy time. Um, so we had that. We had um, the African uh, Nations Cup in Egypt. Um, we kind of came in there with the idea that we were just going to help grow a pitch in, and we ended up staying and doing the whole tournament. So 
was uh, we were thinking was probably about three or four weeks work where we can just train the guys up and that that was a big part of what we were trying to do in terms of the ethos is coming we weren't just going in there and just saying right you need to do this you need to do that and never given why's and how's or when's just literally just kind of plowing there and do it whereas we were going in there we were actually sometimes we're going in there and training staff how to best practices and things like that um, so essentially they're self-sufficient the idea is, is that we can walk away and they can just carry on so it's just implementing those um the, the our skill set and our knowledge and impart that onto them and kind of fast track them so they can at least look after the surface that they've got um like i say the, the african the nation's cup was crazy because again that was initially how it all had to be done it was a very late um awarding so essentially the, the african nations they all vote who was going to have this tournament and they'd gone and selected a country and then they went back there to review it like a year out and it's like you're not going to be able to deliver this tournament are you so they had to cast a vote again and egypt was awarded it they had six months to deliver this tournament <laughs> so we literally went to the cairo national stadium which is uh, the big one where the final was held and we were helping um Target, who built this at Grassmaster, they installed one in, in this Cairo stadium and they needed help doing it. So we went in there with this one and then it was just like, yeah, we've got a tournament to deliver. Um, so as a support for the contractor out there in Egypt that had installed this, we trained the staff. We uh, sat there through the entire tournament to make sure the pitch was as good as it could be. And the way it had all gone about, Bermuda was stitched in, uh, kind of sewn into the hybrid um and it was a bit too early it was a bit too cool the bermuda was like taking forever to establish um which is ironic considering we're in egypt i mean it's like literally red hot for like eight nine months of the year it's just the time we decided to try and get bermuda to go just too early um so we overseed it with perennial rye uh <laughs> and then we had to take that all the way through the summer so we're working with perennial rye grass and it normally it normally stops metabolizing it's normally going into shutdown probably around 32 34 an absolute push on odd days uh we tried to deliver i say tried we did we delivered the pitch through a tournament um the nighttime temperatures were 34 degrees centigrade <laughs> the day the daytimes yeah yeah the daytimes were closer to 50 so we we, we were kind of really forcing ryegrass to do something it did not want to do um but how did, behold, how did you end up combating it uh to be honest i mean i was struggling with the weather so i mean i don't know how the uh, the ryegrass was dealing with it i mean what we tried to do was um essentially fail safe it so we were using lots of syringe and irrigation to try and cool that surface down um on the flip side we tried to do that all during the daytime which sounds a bit ironic really because obviously you can have that scorch effect with it all being um uh with that moisture sat on the surface but because the it, uh, the et rates were so high we were finding we were in we were doing syringing probably oh we must have been doing syringing every hour and a half and we we're putting around 2.5 millimeters of water on but i should imagine 65 percent of that was gone literally within about two seconds <laughs> honestly it was just gone so uh, uh but it was the safest way to do it obviously doing any irrigation any watering and obviously the once the sun's gone down that it just sits on the surface then obviously 
pathogens are just going to love that. I mean, it was warm, wet. I mean, we would have been just been in so much trouble if we tried to do it any other way. So um, essentially, we just did the basics um, 10 out of 10. That That's basically what we did. I mean, we just couldn't. There was no... There was no room for mistakes. There was no, there was no, uh, uh, there was literally no leeway whatsoever. There was, if something went wrong with the ryegrass, it was just game over. You'd never get something to reestablish itself during a tournament in time. Um, so yeah, we just had to go for it. It had close, opening and closing ceremonies. I mean, there was giant glow up pyramids being rolled around on it. There was a huge carpet rolled out on it, which had all the graphics and everything on. And you just, it seemed like if everything they could do, they could that they would do. But we ended up having to engage with the um, presentation team, so the guys that are going to do the actually um, did all the choreography and everything for the, for this thing. We had to engage with these guys, and we had to basically they were thinking, right, we're going to do two or three days of rehearsals, and it's going to be five hours at a time. And it's just like you have to go through that whole again, reverting way back when with that communication and talking to people. That negotiation piece, you'd be just doing it for for like it'd be an hour or two hours just to and fro and to and fro and trying to get them to understand why we're saying it's not a good idea to do that and then having your ace sleeve and just uh, you're just kind of working it where you just say right I'm just gonna have to call in the general manager for the stadium now no naives on your side and said right this is where we're looking at and it's it's a very delicate process because everybody wants to deliver a successful tournament and that includes the guys that want to do this opening ceremony I mean it's obviously a massive thing for the country so yeah, yeah, I had to learn kind of again that process of just dealing with people. And again, you've got the language barrier as well, so it's kind of broken English that's coming back at you. So you just uh, <laughs> you're getting stuff lost in translation, which was always quite interesting. So you'd be like, uh, oh yeah, yeah, you need to do such and such, and they'd come walking in with something completely different. And you're like, I didn't even say that. I mean, what is? That? I don't know what this is. Don't even try it. Nope. <laughs> 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 I don't, why does no one listen to the groundskeeper, huh? What, what's with that, you know? Well, they do, but it takes a long, long time for them to understand. And it's, again, it's so easy just to go into this kind of barking mode and just go, no, you can't do this. There's a reason that you can't, you just can't do it. And because it's just, you don't want to have to deal with people, but you have to. So you have to really kind of get down to, this is my thought process. This is what I think of doing. It's also how you deliver that as well. So it's so easy just to kind of go bang, lose your temper, and then just turn into this ranting match because they want this and that. And it just turns into this whole loggerheads thing. Whereas if you can say, right, what do you need to do? What's the sort of time that you need for it? Let's talk about it because that's too much for this turf to be able to take it. And we need to have it ready for football. Uh, and that's the process you kind of go through. So working at pro pitch, like I say, getting taken so out of my comfort zone so many times and you're just thinking, wow, I don't even know if I can do this. But you just do, you just do it. Um, and, and you tend to find it's rather, rather than you stand back and just go, no, I can't do this. I think sometimes you've just got to step into the fire and just say, right, let's, let's, let's get on with it. Let's do it. Um, so yeah, pro pitch was a, was a crazy 15 months um, traveling all over. Um, and then uh, I've got a young family, so uh, I've got like three kids and 15 months of work with pro pitch. I probably spent nine or 10 months of that actually out of the country. So I wasn't even at home. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it was something for me that I wanted to kind of get back into. So I, I love sports turf. I wanted to get back into it. I wanted to be based in the UK. Um, 
so we kind of went through that um thought process of saying right we're going to base in the uk and then we'll just deal with what comes with it i wasn't quite expecting to be as busy as what we were and spending as much time abroad as what we were um part of my role at pro pitch as well was um helping to develop an app again uh, i know how to tap an app tile on my phone and it opens up and things happen on it um, but then to be said, right, we've got to develop an app and then actually being at, thrown right in the deep end, um, saying, right, we've got an app. We need to know what it's going to be delivered. This is the budget. Let's get on with it. And it's like, wow, this is interesting. I mean, in my, in my head, I know what I think it needs to look like. <laughs> totally, let's do it, you know. I'll just go whip it up real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, and that's another thing as well. Actually, once you've seen the, the 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 development of an app and how you get from somewhere to a finished product, I mean, essentially, I started at Pro Pitch in the May. In June, I was kind of engaging with app developers um, and kind of talking through the ideas and the vision of what I, I think it needed to look like um essentially i left um pro pitch in august um 19 so it's a, it's quite a significant bit of time but we just about had a finished app so we had reams and reams of to and fro in we had loads and loads of r&d um trialing we were just getting through through the design elements all of that sort of thing and the, the, the app essentially is a tool to be able to collect that data. So when you're actually going out and doing, carrying out these tests, um, you can literally just flick your way through this and punch the data in as you're going. Um, and then on the flip side, once you've done and dusted that, you essentially just say, right, submit. And essentially it spits out a report. It's done, it's dusted. Um, part of our problem as a consultant was that we are kind of had this mantra that if we were ever to do these assessments, we'd try and get a report back to them in like 24 hours. Um, and the old way we were doing it, we were essentially, we had every program opening windows and we were just paste special in from here to there and then taking this graphic from there. We had to pull photos in and to do one report and have it back within 24 hours. I think we spent four hours doing the report. <laughs> so it has actually took us more time to, to produce a report than it did actually to do the assessment when you're actually out in the field. Um, so yeah, that was a premise with this app. But now what we're doing now is actually that, that app ended up going that's essentially going to be offered for people that want to buy kits and they can actually do the assessments themselves and they can punch all this data in and essentially they can monitor the pitch through data their own way. Um, so that was a kind of uh, quite, a, it was a nice thing to be able to deliver and um, when I walked away from that, I thought, well, actually, that's quite not, never, I'm never going to do one again. That's just the way I look at it. It's like, not, not necessarily, um, it, it is out of choice. I would never sign myself up again unless I absolutely had full control over it. Um, but the whole process, I mean, it was so frustrating. I mean, I was trying to do it while I was traveling as well. So uh, just to give you a quick example, I mean, I, I literally flew from London, UK. I flew over to Mexico City. I was working at the Azteca. They were trying to do, they were trying to solve some problems there. So I went, walked straight into a cauldron of fire. Lots of things weren't quite right. Um, did all of that. Then I'd go back to the hotel room and at 2 a.m. Mexico time, I'm up having a conversation with the app developer in India. Uh, he's on the following day. So I had to stay up to have a two-hour conversation on some crucial aspects of the app because obviously we've got deadlines to meet. And I'm up at 2 a.m. Um, 
Uh, no, sir. I will call you when I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, but I knew I wouldn't ever have the time to do it. So it, it was really the only viable option I had. Gotcha. But I must wasn't very clever the following day. Definitely not. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, an opportunity came up at Twickenham. I mean, I essentially, I flew from Cairo, finished there. I flew to um, uh, Budapest in Hungary. Uh, via Vienna because there wasn't a direct flight so I left at 6am I finished well 6am in the morning I was getting myself sorted in Cairo flew to um, to, went to the stadium did my final checks said uh, my goodbyes to the lads that are there looking after the pitch and airport flew to um, Budapest via Vienna Um, absolutely shot to bits I was so I'd done two weeks straight um, 12 13 hour days my sleep pattern was all over the place um, and then I had to go in into Budapest to, to help deliver the Women's Champions League final I got to my hotel in Budapest at like 2am so I, I didn't even know I didn't even know what day it was I didn't even know what week it was let alone day um, had my shower laid on my bed the usual I just started scrolling through the phone and then the advert came up for the job I've got and I, uh, it's one of the few jobs that I thought if there's going to be any job that I'd go for uh, and, and don't have any what ifs, if I don't, it was this one. So I didn't even think twice. So I literally had had my shower, checked the phone, and then I got up and opened the laptop up and I applied there and then. So at 3am in Budapest, after being up for 20 odd hours or whatever it was, um, I was applying for the job. Uh, it, that's That's how much of an opportunity I thought it was that I just... Let's get it done. Let's get it in. Before I get tied up with being busy, we're trying to deliver this next game, basically. Um, so, yeah, I kind of did all that. And then, yeah, um, had a couple of interviews. That went really well, obviously. Um, and I started in uh, September 19. Um, had a brilliant first six months. Uh, it was a World Cup year, so they do, they host a World Cup every four years. And it was out in Japan in 2019. Um, at Twickenham, they normally do the uh, Autumn Internationals, which is England will play consecutive games on weekends through November. Um, I missed that, so obviously because it was a World Cup there around Japan playing. So it was quite quiet, so it was a nice introduction to the job, really get a feel for everything. And, uh, yeah, then, then, then the world went to crap, basically. So Best way to put it, yep. <laughs> <laughs> literally did two Six Nations games, which was full stadium, um, really two brilliant games. Uh, England won both of them. I thought, this is it. Um, March the 7th was our Six Nations game. We were looking forward to delivering another um, domestic game. So they're going to be playing, uh, two domestic teams were going to be playing in the stadium in April. Um, but literally two weeks after that, it was just, yeah, the world got shut down. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. We actually, we our students were hired to paint uh, the, so it was a, soccer stadium that had a, a xfl it's a different type of football american football league that had just started so we had converted mls so major league soccer to xfl football and then that was like two days after that when they said hey guess what you're not allowed to leave your house anymore it was just it's still insane to me how it just was like a flip of the switch you know yeah yeah uh, and to be honest there's been so many adjustments post that and you're trying to uh, I mean, it's so difficult because you, when you work in sports turf for so long and you, 
certainly professional sport, you're, you're completely governed by a fixture list. You, you've got a calendar that you run by. So you've got your gaps, you work with your gaps, you know what you're doing. And then you can kind of set everything out. I'm a, I'm a avid planner. I plan everything in terms of my work. I need to know. Yeah, exactly. I've got, uh, I mean, obviously I'm at home now, but at work, I've got like a huge whiteboard. I've got Excel sheets literally coming out of my ears and I, I record everything. But that's for me, so I've got that reference point to understand why something has happened if something has happened. I can just work my way back and just go, actually, now I can see why that's happened. It's because we did this, this and this, or it's because we didn't do this. So when that gets taken away from you, and essentially you just come to the... It's, what our aim was is that we were going to essentially have the pitch ready that we can just slowly build it back up within two weeks so if, if I, I, I don't, when I look back on it now I mean how we thought anything was going to happen in the space of two weeks is beyond me because I mean it's it's um it, here we are we've managed to I think we've we've hosted sort of like six games of rugby seven games of rugby all of them behind closed doors and it took us best part of six months before we even had a game of rugby in there but um the premise was that we were going to have the pitch ready to switch back on again within two weeks. So that, and that's how we just worked through the entire summer. Like and you that. guys have had multiple shutdowns, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we just, we, we, we uh, about a few weeks back, we came out of lockdown three, three point. <laughs> I, I think it'd be very, be not a good sight if there was another lockdown here in the U S but that's just, we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me. When I start, everybody start questioning their governments. Uh, uh, no, that, that let's keep it. Let's keep it light. You know. <laughs> um, with everything that you sort of just talked about, you had a lot of transition from different roles and from what it sounded like. You seemed really tired. There's so much work that was in your consulting that sort of like again took over some aspects of your life. What was your sort of decision making process? on those transitions uh like you said you you made a step up but at the same time it was a couple steps back because you went from uh a lower level to the premier league and then again working your way back up through that and then transitioning from what is it probably one of the most prominent positions in say football in the uk to again multi i mean i've heard it's i've heard it's beautiful and everything but again what was sort of your decision making process going from again such a great position to again out of your comfort zone was that just sort of something you wanted to try something you needed to do um if you could just sort of give an explanation of how you made those decisions and what played a role in all of that i think um i think most of it for me is it, it there's two things I kind of look. Number one is obviously your gut feeling. You, I, I'm a I'm a big believer that if you're feeling it, I think you got to seriously consider it. And I, I I was one of those that I didn't want to be one. You kind of thinking no regrets and all the rest of it, and um, uh, everything happens for a reason and all this and and destiny and all that. And I and I think I'm quite pragmatic when it comes to that. It's more a case of like I say, going back to it, it's, it's that gut feeling. Um, it, is it something that you think is going to enrich you? Is it going to, for you as a person, are you going to develop? Um, and that's like I say, as much as it's professional, it's personal as well. Um, some decisions are based on um, the family. So, I mean, 
I kind of feel like I need to do something different and better for them. I mean, also as well, I think you can be in your comfort zone for, and you can get comfortable. So within it, and I get, I think sometimes you can get quite insular. So it's, you kind of, you kind of get quite a narrow focus point to the point where you actually, you're not seeing anything. You just, you, you've gone and, you've gone and focused that hard that you're literally just looking through this tiny slit. And it's just like hyper-focused. And sometimes you need to know when you need to take some steps back just to try and broaden your view again. Uh, and for me, from a work perspective, I had to, I had to have something that was going to challenge me and not only that, but it had to enrich me. So it's, so it's nice. I'm a workaholic. So, I mean, I, I absolutely, I will work hundred hour weeks. Won't even think twice about it. I'll just do it. And it's because it needs to be done and I want it to be done. So I'll do it. And it's that, that, that drive as well. And I'm thinking, well, I need to have that uh, kind of going. And if that means I've got to do 16 hour a day, then I'm doing a 16 hour a day. And if that means that's going to make my tomorrow a bit easier, then I'm going to do that tomorrow. So it's it, it is one of those. By my very nature, I'm a workaholic. So it's so when, when I kind of say, yeah, I was consulting and I was flying here, I was doing that, and I was tired and positions. I did it all with a smile on my face, you know. So I mean, it might sound like it's yeah, that was kind of really hard. It was. It sounds like it's really busy for a lot of people. That is, but for me, I just. I, I just get smashed into things. I don't. I don't really one of those that kind of think. Is there an easier way to do something? And it's not. It's just for me. I'm, my 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 ethic is. Everybody says, "Oh, if you, if you work hard, you you get lucky." That's crap. It really isn't. You work hard, you get recognition. That's the difference. Then when you get recognised, then you get rewarded. That's the way you've got to look at it. Luck doesn't come into it. Luck is if you if if before you step out, you don't get hit by a bloody car. That's luck. But if if you if you've got the drive and you work hard, you get your recognition. If you get your recognition, you get rewarded. And then with that, that's that 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 and that's how you've got to look at it. And I think if you're thinking, well, something's going to turn for me, I'm going to get a bit of luck and get an opportunity. Yeah, okay, you are going to get opportunities, but those opportunities come your way because you've worked hard for it. Not because God's looking down on you and he's handed, he's given you a good hand, you know, it's just like you make your own life. And I think that's the way I've always looked at it is that I've worked hard. And if I see there's an opportunity for me to, to, to go somewhere else and develop and challenge myself and still continue to enjoy what I'm doing, which is ultimately what it is, Hence why I like doing the hours I do is because I enjoy it. It's not, it's not, yeah, okay, I get home and I'm absolutely shot to bits and I'm sat there drinking a rum and coke. And I'm not like thinking, yeah, that was, but I, I, I'm happy because I know I've worked hard and I've, I, I've done a good day. So that's a job satisfaction. You don't get that. You don't get that in many jobs, you know, where you, you can work hard and you can physically see the results from. Sports turf is one of the few where you can really put, a lot of effort in and you can see you can see the results it's it's tangible you know it's not like shifting a load of emails saying wow i've cleared half my email inbox today it's like yeah no thanks not for me i need to i need to physically see um that and that's as much that's the drive as well you know i think it's um it, it is a case of just working hard
Uh, and if anybody thinks you're going to get somewhere in life by ducking and diving, you will to an extent, but it, you won't get where you want to be. <laughs> and if you do get where you want to be, you'll get found out. <laughs> Some of our students who have graduated from our program and are currently attending a, a university studying turf grass management want to take what they're, they're learning and travel the world and work at different fields and golf courses worldwide. Um, yeah. Can you talk about your experiences of traveling the globe and working on these different turf grass fields and um, discussing turf grass with um, those different cultural backgrounds and practices for um, each different pitch? Yeah. So in terms of the traveling and things like that, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, romantic but it's a means to an end you need to get there so <laughs> jump on the damn plane and get there right <laughs> um so so I, I think I thought it was like a movie where they just like showed up and they were there you know yeah yeah exactly yeah no it's uh, it's not I mean everybody knows international travel I mean airports and uh, 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 sorting out visas and you tend to be traveling heavy as well so you've got I've got tools, assessment tools that I'm taking with me. So I've essentially got two massive grabby cases. Um, and then you spend eight hours on a plane with a crying baby behind you. I mean, it's, I'll be really honest with you. It's not, it's not exactly fun, but. Sounds like I'll, a dream. I mean, crying yeah. baby. <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of, the way I look at it is, is that uh, I see it as being an opportunity to go somewhere else. I'm traveling to another part of the world. I've been asked to go in there to help advise and I've been in there to go and do a job. Um, I think the bottom line is, is that you just take everything you've learned, your, your, your ethic, um, how, how, how you approach sports turf and you've got to very quickly assess what you're walking into. Um, I think it's really important to build that communication really early so they get a feel for how you work, um, how you are as a person, um, what those expectations are. I mean, ultimately, they've got to buy into the vision. So that you're there to try and recover something. You've gone in there to try and assist and help and improve their surface. Um, and sometimes you can go into places and you're turf god. So you've got to go in there you're the all CNI, you know everything about turf and you have to, you have to deliver. So whatever you say, they'll do, right? And uh, they're the good jobs. They're the good ones. The, the, the bad ones are where they've had three consultants going before you. It's still not right. And you're, before you've even walked into a venue, you're automatically going to be seen with a suspicious eye. So... <laughs> Where I always go back, where I think for anybody that's kind of wanting to really get a good idea of some of the life skills you need to get, 100% communication is key. You need to learn how to communicate. And I have to learn really quickly how to build relationships, um, gain their trust that what I'm going to ask them to do is going to help. Um, and then, again, same principle lead by example i don't just stand there and say yeah this is what needs to be done and then put my arms folded if i've got an opportunity to show somebody how i would do it i would then go out to do it so then they understand the process and then it's like well when i leave they can do it so they, they understand from start to finish how to put a fertilizer application down on the pitch they might have never done it before if they have done it they might not necessarily done it the right way um so yeah i i kind of think in 
when you kind of drop into these places, it's 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 a, it's a cauldron, and you've got to read you've got to read the situation really quickly. And I think if you get an opportunity to go and base yourself somewhere and spend, because from my perspective, they were really really short stints. Certainly, when it comes to sports stuff, you don't get to really kind of um, get a feel for the the weather in its entirety. You don't really get a feel to build relationships with the team that are working there. We are coming in. We are going to hold their hand. We're going to support them. We're going to advise them. We're going to we're, we're going to impart knowledge and experience. But we have to do it in such a short space of time. So everything's all fast. So we're not just kind of getting a bit. Whereas you could go into a new job and you've got a bit of time just to kind of take that all in. You've got like, well, I've got a month to get a good idea of what this pitch does, how it works, how the team work. I can really kind of just take my time. When you go into some of these places, I was literally just going in and I might only be there for two weeks. So I've got like two days to learn how to speak some language, which I'm absolutely, I can't even speak the English language, let alone uh, kind of pick up uh, Spanish or, uh, I've obviously proven I can't speak English tonight. So. <laughs> um, uh, so, so language barriers are always an issue. I must admit, I spent most of my time um, on Google Translate. Uh, and to be honest, that was even worse at some points. I mean, Google Translate, I mean, Jesus, there were some bad mistranslations on that. I mean, I put something in that I thought, and I, I don't know what it spat at the other end, but the guy looked at me like he wanted to kill me. So I don't know what I don't I don't know what Google Translate decided to put in as a different word, but it it didn't go down too well. So um, sign language, really rudimentary sign language, um, uh, and above all, you have to have a sense of humour. So you have to smile, you have to crack the jokes. Um, groundsmen and uh, uh, greenkeepers and groundskeepers all across the world <laughs> they always have a sense of humor because it's just the very nature in which they're working in so it's very easy to kind of build that rapport up nice and easy and uh, there's lots of banter there's lots of um, kind of uh taking the piss you just kind of just just to kind of build that rapport and that's all part of that trust thing so it's like yeah you can take the, you can you, you can have the jokes are on me fine yeah i'm gonna hold my hands up and laugh with you whatever and you kind of just take that so um uh, the guy I was working with with Pro Pitch, he'd go in there and actually just give everybody nicknames, whether they liked it or not, they got a nickname. And it got to the point where he'd go in there, he'd only been somewhere for like two or three weeks, but everybody, were all calling each other by those nicknames by the end of it. So, uh, like I say, we were in Mexico, and there's one guy who looked like Diego Maradona, so he was just called Diego. That's, and by the end of it, everybody was calling him Diego, even though his name was like uh, Manuel or something. It's just like, absolutely. But it's nice, it breaks the ice. Um, so yeah, you've got to learn all these kind of these uh skill sets when you're going around there. With regards to the turf, I mean, you could be walking into anything. So, like I said, uh, I think looking after turf exceptionally well, the basics, proper 10 out of 10, just really get you, you know what turf needs, you know what turf is going to do to respond and perform. That's what you aim for, that's what you concentrate on because you haven't got time to start thinking, well. We could maybe think about maybe changing the water quality because that's having an impact. It doesn't matter. There's water available. That's what you're using. <laughs> so you, you have to really just get right back down to basics and say, what are the resources? It's like, right, we've got this fertilizer. We've got it off uh, uh, an Egyptian farmer that he uses to grow sort of like fruit with. And you're like, well, no, I mean, obviously that's not going to be great for sports turf. But if you're telling me that's all that's available right now, 
we're going to use it and it's going to be, uh, we'll have to work at application rates and everything else afterwards. Let's just get something, let's get going. Um, so yeah, you very much have to think on your feet. Um, whereas I think if you're doing an internship or you're dropping in somewhere, I think ultimately you've just got to uh, immerse yourself with whatever country you're in, the culture, um, go out, go and see things um, uh, and, get, and, and show some appreciation and understanding of the country that you're in. Um, I think that's really important. So um, like I say, for me, working in Egypt, so I did some work out in the UAE as well as part of um, Club World Cup um, uh, and Asia Cup sort of um, tournament delivery. And again, but it's, it's um, obviously devout Muslim countries for the best part. So you need to understand that, I mean, I was in Egypt and they were, they were practicing Ramadan. So I, I couldn't go in and have this expectation that the guys were going to work during the day when they're fasting. So what we ended up doing is that I'd catch up with them in the morning while they're completely kind of out of it because they're absolutely high on whatever they've eaten all overnight and everything else because um, with, with, with the sundown and everything. But during the day, I'd let them just rest, sleep, because obviously they don't want to do anything because they can't eat, which is what most people want to do during the day. So what we ended up doing, and I did it with them, we'd end up working at night. So as soon as the sun had gone down, they'd have their big meal. It's like, right, they're ready to go. So we worked from like, 9 p.m. till sort of four in the morning so we're just essentially doing night shifts and that's what i mean about kind of just putting yourself in the culture don't put it all on them that they need to work how you work (laughs) you're going into their you're going into their country you're going into their environment you're going into their venue you adapt to them um and then within that you're kind of passing on your knowledge and uh and experience and helping them get set up and everything else but throw yourself into it um so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't eat in front of them. I wouldn't drink in front of them during the day, knowing that they're practicing Ramadan. So it's things like that that you just kind of just got to be very um, open to doing um, rather than just kind of thinking, well, I don't do that in my country, so I'm not going to do it while I'm in yours. Um, you won't get liked. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and it will be very difficult to kind of build any relationships past that if you're going to start um, going down those sort of roads. So I think it's very good to try and just integrate yourself in and become part of the team, ultimately. Um, yeah, you might be leading them, but um, yeah, you just need, you need to just kind of build yourself into that one in terms of relationships. Really important. I love that. That's awesome how you did that. And taking those things into consideration probably means the world to them. So it's definitely, definitely awesome. Um, I do want to sort of shift uh, focus to your current position where you're working now, the grass taken yep. care of. Um, we sort of already discussed this. Rugby is a different animal. Um, scrums, everything that goes into it. Again, if I was out there, I'm a large man, I'd still get run over. Um, what is it that you're paying attention to closely uh, during a game? Uh, preparing for what you're going to do post game in the next few days, preparing for that next uh, match that you have. If that's the right word for it, I apologize. Yeah. 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 Um, so in terms of the game itself, um, the, the, the surface is dry, but uh, obviously the ball's being handled. So there's, the, the, there's no need um, unless obviously the good old British weather decides to throw its all in, which it generally does. Um, but our, our aim is to have the surface dry. Um, this happened here five minutes ago, poured out of nowhere. So, <laughs> we'd, uh, so we'd, um, um, we tend to cut around 
um, 30 millimeters. So it's not particularly long considering um, the actual surface itself. Ultimately, my aim is traction for the players. Um, they need to be able to have um, confidence in the surface that if they decide they want to change direction, um, they can change direction. Um, the obviously aim is, is that I'm sure they don't want to get smashed with a tackle. If they, if they decide to slip, then they're going to get hit hard. Um, so traction in terms of the backs to be able to change direction quite quickly. Um, traction again for the forwards, um, same principle. They're going to be scrummaging and mauling. So there's a lot of work on the ground, um, but the players need to be able to have that confidence in the surface. So we're, our aim is, um, for, for, from a turf perspective, is we're, we're trying to keep the turf healthy ultimately. Um, it tends to look after itself. It's being looked after well. Um, we give it all the right inputs at the right time. Um, little things that we try and do is try and gear up. When we air eight, for instance, we won't do it any closer than 10 days out from a game, purely because we just relieve some of that heart firmness that might necessarily be there, do the gas exchange, and then we'll actually start to bed down and firm that back down again. Um, prior to the game um, we tend to find actually the pitch doesn't perform particularly well if it's say for instance we we, we clegg hammer um, if if the gravity is sort of like mid 80s and below we know the pitch is not going to perform particularly well so um, it will tend to move cut up um, traction will will be there obviously because of the fiber um, but we just tend to find from our perspective for us to be able to get a pitch repaired quickly we can't do that if it's sort of below that sort of number so we normally tend to go for sort of 85 plus and we can probably top out about maybe 100 maybe 105 depending on the conditions um, that still allows them to, for their cleats to still get contact with the soil um, and then what we do else uh, as well is we kind of put a bit of a conditioning spray application down um, so we use uh, calcium nitrate, uh, magnesium, uh, we use uh, potassium silicate as well. And the idea is just to kind of get the leaf turgid. So it's actually quite stiff and hard. Um, it pulls some of the moisture out of the leaf as well. So it's less likely to have um, sort of that tears, that fraction tears. Because um, what we tend to find is if it gets clipped at the crown on right, just it, it takes so much longer for it to come back. So the idea is, is that we don't get any hemorrhaging of the actual leaf itself. Yeah, it gets flattened down, but we can brush it and stand it all back up again and it's good as gold. Whereas if we don't start having those inputs in there and it's got a bit too much moisture in the leaf, um, we tend to find it just plays a bit differently. Um, it tends to cut up a bit more. Um, we tend to lose more grass coverage because we're physically losing grass leaf. Um, during the game itself, I tend to count the scrums. We try to work out where those scrums have been. So at halftime, we get an opportunity to go out there and do any pitch repairs. So it's normally a good idea to try and keep tabs on where those scrums have taken place. So we can obviously just get straight out there and repair those as quickly as we can. Um, and then post-match, like a lot of guys over here do in the UK, I'm not too sure how it works for you guys over there, but we get we tend to get obviously debris um, from, from the pitch. And because it's a hybrid pitch we don't want to have too much organic matter build up on the top because characteristically infiltration rates slow down um, because it's sand based it hasn't got any microbes or anything in there to kind of break that organic matter down so it just builds up um, so we have to physically try and remove that um, before it gets to move down 
into the, below the canopy and actually onto the surface. So we use just small pedestrian mowers, only 22 inch uh, Honda mowers, essentially. We have brushes fitted onto the front of them. So we essentially groom the surface, flick all the debris up and suck it up and remove it off the surface. Um, and we can remove anything up to, depending on conditions, we can remove anything between maybe a cube or two cube clippings um, off the surface uh, after each use. Um, and that's just debris that if we didn't, that just break down and go into the surface. And like I say, it'll start to impede infiltration. And then we're in all sorts of bother um, later on in the season. Um, and then sometimes we, we might apply a post-recovery spray, which tends to be more, um, we aim for like carb, carbohydrates, just simple sugars, just to get into the leaf. It just speeds that recovery process up. Um, we've got um, we've got 10 grow lights, so they'll get put out onto the field. Again, it's uh, it's an 82,000 seat stadium, so it, it's quite high stadium. So we tend to have quite a few shade issues anyway. So um, the lights are used for that. Um, but again, that process is just trying to speed that recovery up so we can kind of get that pitch into as good a condition as we can before its next usage. And again, with everything with that, that's definitely something to be worried about. Um, with the debris and everything you're talking about, um, what cultural practices are you focusing on, uh, particularly during the season? Um, and then outside of the season, uh, are you – you're obviously aerating you talked about. Are you seeding? Is there any uh, top dressing, anything along those lines that you're focusing on uh, in season versus out of season, maybe sort of like a uh, renovation type thing that you can do in-house um, without, again, taking the deso out or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So so, so the, the, the deso Grassmaster, the, the construction itself, is kind of guaranteed for 10 years. So essentially once that construction has been built, as long as it's maintained and is uh, renovated each closed season, um, that should do a decade, basically. So, what we do from a from a during the, in the season, um, my main aim essentially is lots of grooming. So we tend to disturb the surface a lot, um, even potentially if we've had games on there. So we'd rake the surface. We just try and get all that grass stood back up again. Um, I'm not a huge advocate for keeping patterns in all the time. Um, I'd rather have the grass standing up and aesthetically might not look brilliant, but in terms of its health, it's all stood upright. Um, so, so, so we'll do um, a lots of reverse mowing. So we'll essentially try and get all the, the nap of the grass stood back upright. Um, we top dress. Um, we aim to top dress every sort of like four to six weeks. And again, that's just to kind of keep the keep the surface fresh and keep the, the, the crown clean. Um, make sure there's lots of air movement around there. Try and stop the algae building up. Um, again, we we tend to find that's quite a nice vehicle for pathogens to move around. So um, if we keep disturbing that surface and don't let it build up, um, we kind of stop that environment being uh, created from that organic matter. Um, and we'll do that right through the season. Um, in terms of frequency, yeah, every four to six weeks we'll top dress. Um, Aeration-wise, it'll be as and when. In, invariably, it depends. If we've got an excessive amount of games, we won't get an opportunity to do it. We'll probably do a deep, vertical drain. Um, so we'll probably aim to sort of punch down to 
maybe six inches or so. Um, but generally, we use a Procore, the, the, the idiot proof, one of the best uh, machines ever created by man for sports turf. We just we just ordered one. We're excited. Oh. Hopefully, my idiots don't prove it wrong to not be idiot proof. <laughs> I love you guys. I'm just hey, I'm pretty I'm good not. at that. Uh, that whole making sure it's idiot proof. Don't. hundred percent. I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm a, I can guarantee I'm an idiot and I can operate. With, with you'd be fine um so yeah so we, we, we aerate probably a, the aim is every four to six weeks um fairly similar but if we've got an intensive amount of games we normally have to sit on it and then we'll just do a deeper aeration post those sets of games um and then what we tend to do we have our season runs pretty much from august depending on what we've got games wise um, and we'll have international fixtures, domestic fixtures. We've got um, some uh, sponsors days. So they get, as part of the contractual rights, they get to have access to the pitch. So we're very similar to Carl at Wembley in that sense that um, we get lots of sponsors that get days on the pitch. Um, so we'll go all the way through Six Nations um, through February, March. Um, April, we'll slip back in and have some more domestic games. Um, and then we go right through to Premiership final, which is the final um, of the domestic league in England. Um, then I haven't experienced it yet, but normally there's concerts straight after that. So as soon as they've finished that, we'll have a concert season, which is quite restricted at Twickenham purely because of the licensing laws um, in the area. So they'll they'll have a, a few um, concerts. Then after that is close season renovations, which... If, uh, if if you check my Twitter, you can see that we've just done one, which, again, the pandemic's just put us all out of sync massively. So uh, we've we've had to do, done two renovations in the space of like six months. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so you kind of discussed your, what your aeration patterns and stuff like that are for your yearly basis. Could you discuss your day-to-day operations for you and your uh, maintenance team? Uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, we, we tend to, if we're looking at 15 degrees plus uh, in the UK, we're probably cutting every day. Um, in terms of uh, our maintenance schedule from a day to day, we've got the main stadium pitch. Um, outside of that, we've got 12 acres um, and there's all kinds of things. We've got, um, we've got a, an area which is like a rehab area, which is just outside the stadium. That's maintained by us. We've got... Um, uh, lots of hard landscaping um, that all needs to be maintained by us. Um, I, I, I've got a, like a, an advisory sort of role as well with regards to some of the areas that England rugby train at. So there's a training facility just outside of London um, that I go and help out and um, advise and consult um, and help those guys out down there. Um same principle, we've got another area which is actually in London, not too far away from the stadium itself. Um, again, just as an advisor, really just to help out as and when needs to be there. Um, and then we've got a, a um, scheme that we work a programme, it's called Rugby Grounds Connected, um, and that's to help all the grassroots clubs um, to, to raise the standard of their pitches. So we're, uh, again, as an advisory basis, we're just trying to look at to evolve that now but same principle we're there to kind of impart knowledge and um uh kind of things like that so i do quite a few webinars um we tend to do sort of like one big webinar every sort of like six weeks or so 
again, just to kind of go through the process of understanding sports turf basics. And obviously these guys are just volunteers. I mean, they were probably an accountant in their past life before they retired. So they're like 60 and it's like, well, what can I do to kind of keep busy? Uh, and they tend to volunteer. So uh, obviously these guys just go, yeah, I'll, I'll look after the pitch and then obviously don't know what the hell they're doing. So um, we kind of, um, we, we've tried to just reach out to these guys, especially during the pandemic. Obviously it'd be nice to be able to go around to some of these clubs and see these guys, but um, that's obviously not, a, not an option at the moment over here. So again, it was the easiest way for us to share knowledge and content that way. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that invariably, that, that that's quite a regular thing that I'm doing. Um, uh, and in terms of stuff, the day-to-day stuff is slightly different. I think if you look at it from a week basis, so uh, we, we tend to feed quite frequently, but in quite small amounts. So um, I try and only give the pitch what I know it's going to need to be kind of healthy and be able to do everything we need it to do. Um, so we tend to... Um, layer our nutrition so it has like an organic and a mineral fertilizer two separate products but they'll be applied at the same time so we'll just lay one down and then we'll lay one straight over the top so I guess the best of kind of both worlds and then our spray nutrition that's kind of a right mixed bag so we have got a program but because I've got to know the product so well uh, depending on that clip rate and how much we're physically taking off, I will adapt to the end input from that. So I won't just go, right, we're going to put 20 litres of this on. I want 20 kg of that going on every two weeks in terms of end input. Essentially, we I'll measure how much we're clipping off every day and then I will decide how much end we're going to put on on that. So I, I like to try and be quite efficient in my approach with that. Um, I don't like just putting it on there because I think it needs it. I'd rather put it on there because it needs it. Um, and, and again, I'm quite data driven. So that's all my sort of, I, I was to a degree before pro pitch, but pro pitch really kind of rammed it home. Um, really how important it is to kind of collect data, collate it and then get a better understanding of what you're doing to the pitch, what the usage is doing to the pitch um, and actually try to get better by understanding what it is. Um, I think it's so easy, so easy just to think, right, uh, if I do this, this, and this, it's going to do that, that, and that. And I said, yeah, it will do. Like I say, I think the basics of turf, 85%, you can get there quite easy, actually, if you do it really well. Um, once you get to the elite level, we're chasing the rest. So we're, we're, we're fine-tuning everything to gain ourselves a half a percent. Um, we'll take a product out and put a product in to lose half a percent. And we're forever tinkering, forever tinkering. Um, we're never we're never generally very happy either most of the time. <laughs> it's a bit of a curse, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and like you were saying just a second ago, with tinkering, trying to gain that edge, sometimes that's through technology. And you sort of talked about it before the whole BL era. I laughed at that a little bit. I was like, look at that, we have yeah, a whole yeah. new AD system. Look at that, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So artificial lighting has become a huge thing, especially in the UK. Um, I think Carl said it best. He said it's shaped like a shoebox, every stadium. You got the nice little, not really any space for you to grow grass the best possible way. Um, Has there been any other technological advancements that you have seen that you have brought in and implemented to your pitch? Um, Even you discussing your app 
and how there are different things that you can use to measure different aspects of your uh, turf grass. What have you used through the years and what have you seen uh, recently come out that you would like to implement to get that edge that you're talking about? Um, so, yeah, I mean, bar, barring the absolute obvious, which is the, the, the grow lights, which for us in the Northern Hemisphere, where our winter days are so short, I mean, my stadium pitch, for instance, if it, it does happen to be clear and sunny in winter, which never happens in the UK, it's miserable, it's a horrible place to be in the winter, it's low, overcast, tends to be raining, and it's about eight degrees, so it's, I call it blah weather. Um, so it's not really doing a great deal of anything, really. So we, we we kind of the grow lights have been very very significant in terms of us being able to produce surfaces that we want to produce. I think really regards to maybe not necessarily technology, but I think the the industry's approach over here to how we innovate and get better. I think there's a, there's been some very very good relationships built between suppliers between manufacturers between companies that want to provide what we want um, and I think also our approach to our work as well we don't um, whereas years ago we'd just be like right there's a spring summer fertilizer there's not winter fertilizer and if you want something else we can maybe get something with a bit of iron in it and you're like that's what we've got <laughs> so that's all we had to work with there was no other options Whereas now we've we've kind of steered and uh, and demanded more from those suppliers, and we're, over the last ten years, I wouldn't say we're completely flooded, um, but the focus on delivering and producing quality products for us to use, I think, has changed exponentially. So revert back to what I was saying where we're, we're coming down to that tinkering and the fine tuning we can fine tune so much now almost to the point where you can probably get lost in that a little bit but it's not a bad thing I think the fact is is that you can all of a sudden you say well actually if I just take that five liters of that out and I replace it with 10 liters of this that's going to tick more of my boxes but on this particular spray and then you can revert back and change things back out don't don't think that there's that magic formula just saying well I'll just spray this every week and it's going to be great because it won't be, because inevitably the weather will change and whatever you put in there, for instance, it might be a, a urea-based and then obviously the temperatures start to drop away and you're like, well, hold on, why is it working like it was in July? <laughs> Here we are in December and it doesn't work. <laughs> why is that? Um, so, yeah, I, I think for me, I, I think that, that, that suite of products that are now available to the industry is, is something special. Um, and I think that's really helped us to deliver what we want. And I think as much as that's, it's a reaction from the companies by our attitude towards our work. So if we're not, if, if we're saying, right, a company comes in and says, yeah, we've got this product. I think it's going to be really good for you. Like, well, actually, that's not what I want. Companies now will go away and they'll make something bespoke. So they won't just go, well, sorry, this is all we've got on the shelf and that's all you can have. Well, if that's the case, then you're not going to last long in this industry. <laughs> so time to take a walk and go somewhere else. And that's a good, like I say, that's a good thing for the industry. We're, we're kind of pushing that now. So, um, yeah, I think for me, that that's the biggest thing. There's some nice things coming along in the pipeline that I think maybe in the next three or four years will, will be big game changers. But whether we're kind of there now 
probably not. There's a few elements of the technology that's not quite sharp enough for it to be used yeah, or put into the application that you want it to be put into. Um, but I think it, it, some of these things, if they do come about, will be big, big game changers, big game changers. Um, but like I say, it's going to be completely dependent on the companies that are doing the, the R&D and the field trials. And like I say, there's a long way to go in that respect. But um, yeah, I, I think we're there. I mean, ultimately, you just want to be better and get better. Um, and I think as long as you've got companies and uh, people in the industry that want to do that with you, then it's only a good thing. Awesome. That's incredible. Um, I think you touched base a little bit on this. Um, again, where you're at with your facility and being at the top of the top when it comes to uh, rugby in such an iconic place, there are high standards that are expected of you from the facility, from the owners and all the different groups that work with you. Um, and you sort of spoke to it during your consulting days. What is it that you're doing to ensure that your crew and your members uh, of your team are meeting that standard? Um, I, like you said, you're a hands-on type of guy. You like to be leading by example, which I, again, I think is huge. And I try my best to do that every day with my kids. Um, what are you doing to ensure that their work is meeting that high standard that you expect. And that is just, again, sort of the norm of what is in your stadium. Um, so interestingly, I'm in quite a unique um, uh, situation with uh, my team, my, the, 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 the work with me at Twickenham. So there's only three of us um, that at the moment that look into it. I've just actually had sign off for a fourth person, which we're looking to recruit in September. Um, but interestingly, my deputy, he's 50, uh, and my assistant, he's 60. So these guys have got serious amounts of experience. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they've got a wealth of it. They know the venue inside out. They've known everything that's happened over the past. I mean, uh, even taking into account their ages, they've been there respectively like 23 and 22 years. So they've been there a seriously long time. Um, so for me, that's like a whole hive of information, a whole um, load of experience that I can kind of call on and uh, utilise for us as a team to get better. So if I can understand something, I, oh, how come, why does that do that? especially when you come into a new job and you come to a new venue, you've got a good understanding of, like I say, the basics, the core skills that you need to deliver a good surface, but you need to know the past and the background. And then sometimes you need to, uh, you need to uh, identify and ask the right questions at the right time. But the fact that you've got somebody there that's been there for so long, you can basically just say, Oh, do you know what? Why do they do it like this? And they and they they'll be able to give me the reasons behind why something's like that. And then within that, I can assess and say, well, can we change it? Or should it be changed? Or, or I can see why they haven't changed it. So it's given me that ability to be able to assess the situation more. So from that respect, I've got, I've got um, loads of respect for these guys that have been doing it so long and have been looking after this stadium pitch for such a long period of time. Really, really good guys. I really get on them really well. Um, but in terms of like when I came into the role, um, obviously predominantly came from football. So 
uh, and Premier League and everything is right at the sharp ends. Um, you string line out everything. Um, so even when you're mowing, string lines are down so they're pin sharp. Um, when you're putting your markings out, everything's all str- strings. You want everything to be pinpoint sharp. You measure everything eight times and then mark it out once. You go through all this process. So you're right at a really, 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 really high level. In rugby, it's it's a slightly different culture. So they're still delivering good services, but their approach to it is because of the culture of the sport and how it's approached. And it's like, well, rugby players don't really expect much. They expect to be diving around in mud bars, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some of that mentality is still there. So I kind of kind of think, well, actually, well, no, let's not do that. Let's say, right, let's make Twickenham the best rugby union pitch in the world. Why not? There's no reasons why not. It's essentially, it's, the resources are available. We know what we're doing. It's all of us about just being able to sharpen everything up. So let's do that. So um, like I say, when I first started there, it's quite a quiet period. The team were over in Japan. So the stadium itself was fairly quiet. We had a few things going on just to kind of keep us ticking along. But in terms of big events, it was quite quiet. So I had the option then to say, right, kick it a really good feel so I mean the pair of them must have felt like they're on mastermind because I was grilling them every day about everything um if I saw something like oh okay so we've got that why do we do that was so trying to digest and bring all this information and then once you've got that you can reflect and say right okay I get why you do it like that but I think if we try and do it this way and again I'm going to revert all the way back and it's that ability to be able to communicate and communicate effectively as well, not just do it because oh, I'm going to tell you how to do this. This is how we're going to do it. Bang, full stop. If you've got to that level, something's gone wrong. I think if you can get to that point where you're saying, right, from my point of view, this is how I like to see it. I think it'd be great if we can kind of do it this way. I think it would really raise the standard small changes, you know, and some people are like, ah, well, it's a small change. It's not going to make any difference. I was like, well, how do you know? As you know, let's make the small change and see if it changes. And if it doesn't make a change, you're like, okay, you're right. I was wrong. That didn't make. Can it? Let's try something else. But it's just you're trying to um, you're trying to get these guys into that way of thinking. So it gets to a point where they're thinking, oh, okay, now I've got an understanding of what the expectations are here. Let's let's uh, and it helps them to kind of engage in a slightly different way. Um, so yeah, to have that opportunity to be able to kind of work with these guys and them helping me out massively with regards to, like I said, their experience of the venue, um, uh, their experiences, even life skills. I know, I mean, like I said, my deputy's 10 years older than me, but my assistant's 20 years older than me, you know? So they've got vast amounts more experience than I have just with regards to life. So even just some of the general stuff I can ask and they've probably likely it is they've done it and, got it right or got it wrong and can kind of give me a bit of a go give me a nudge in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it, 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 like I say, slightly unique situation with regards to the the, the, the demographic um, of my team, but with regards to our approach to work, it's no different to any other team that you want to deliver the best surface you can. So you do what you need to do to deliver that surface uh, and maintain it as such. Um, you kind of talked about how you were trying to deliver the best um, rugby um, pitch that you can. Um, with the long hours, intense labor that comes with the turf grass management, how do you motivate and ensure that you're getting the best out of your crew um, with the managing of the, of the pitch? Um, again, leading by example is always the key. So I, I don't put any expectations on anybody else to work hours like I work. 
but when the hours do need to be worked, they know that there's an expectation that we're they're going to have to deliver those hours. So I don't, I don't, I don't. Um, I'm, ve- I'm very conscious of the fact that everybody's got lives outside of work. I've got a life outside of work. My choice is is that I want to deliver really good because my outside of work won't be any good. That quality won't be there because. I know I hadn't have delivered on the day. So it's, uh, and that, that, again, my approach to work, and everybody's different. Like I say, working all the way back when I was mentioning managing people is so difficult because everybody's different. Nobody's going to see, have the same vision as you. Nobody's going to have the same thought process as you. Um, and, and it's just aligning all those sort of things with regards to um, how, you, how you want that vision to look um, and, and deliver it. I mean, I think it's so easy just to, like I say, you could just go in there and say, right, this is a job, I'm now I've made it. And it's like, well, yeah, it's great, but you're not challenging yourself. It's just like you've got to the top of the tree, but you've still got to be able to kind of reach for the stars, you know? You've just got to keep going um, and delivering that pitch. And for me, I think groundsmen, groundkeepers, successful ones around the world, they know what they have to do. And it is a laborious job. It does take hours of um, work to deliver those surfaces and you can't get away from that so I think you go into this industry knowing that that's what's required to do it <laughs> at the end of the day most people have been filled out fairly early on when they've realised oh hold on a minute I've just done a 70 hour week and you're telling me I've got to do the same next week because we've got another event to get ready for it's like yep <laughs> it's like right it's not for me it's like right okay and you do you just that's just how it's, it's just filtered down that way so that I think it's uh, as much as it's trying to motivate staff to deliver, uh, you wouldn't be there unless you knew that's what you had to do. So I think it's, uh, don't get me wrong, everybody has their bad days. Nobody rocks out of bed with a smile on their face and ready to rock and roll every day, Monday to Friday. It's just, that's not how it works. But on the flip side of that, you know, when you get into the work, you've got to put your game face on. You've got to help your team to deliver that pitch on that day. And you do it. You just get you just get into it, and uh, and it's not only that though, but it's for the for your teammates to recognise that you're having a bad day, and to help you, you know. So I think it's as much as it's to do that. And I, I had this thing that when I was back at Spurs and uh, this kind of um, culture that I tried to kind of bring in, and it was like it's like the brotherhood. So we all treat each other like brothers. So when you, when you spend more time with your, with your crew than you do with your family, you do, you treat them like brothers and you, you, you have the jokes, you have the laughs, but that's Monday to Friday. But as soon as you know you've got a game day on, everybody switches it back. It's professional. Let's get this delivered. Let's get it done. And then once you've delivered it, you get back, you get back to the laughs and the jokes and a bit of banter. And you, like I say, that's the only way you kind of get through those periods where it's really hard work. You need to have people that, that understand that 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 job is hard there's no two ways about it uh, and, and once you understand that it's a hard job and you accept it for what it is i think that's half the battle some people just don't quite get it it's just like wow hold on a minute i've just done 70 hours is you're telling me it's gonna be the same again next week it's like when do i, when do I get off <laughs> it's like no that's not how it works you know if it's just uh, something not for you you go and do it. You, you go and try something else i think it's as simple as that Absolutely. Uh, I, we worked uh, worked a concert in Pittsburgh. Uh, I worked for both the football team and the baseball team. Their stadiums right next to each other. Uh, one concert one night. 
the next night a concert at the other stadium and it was a long let's say 32 hours i think that i <laughs> work in both events um but i can yeah. fully understand um sort of to segue into the next question you sort of discussed it a little bit um with the venue size and everything you do have concerts and you have that concert season yeah. um with that concerts i don't know how they became such a big part of the industry and such a big part of what sports turf managers do what are you doing to ensure that the impossible uh environment that it puts for the turf grass to to thrive i mean it shuts everything off from it uh with the flooring and everything what are you doing to ensure uh that again your pitch is doing okay and gets through that short period of time where you stress it out to the point where again, you have those sleepless nights of, Oh man, I need to get this flooring off. I need to get everything out of here so I can start growing the grass again. What are you doing to mm. ensure that it's healthy coming out on the back end of a concert? So this is uh, the, 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 I mean, for us in the UK, it's a bit different because the weather is so crap most of the year. Our concert window is so small. I mean, essentially, it's just the summer. Uh, and invariably, what um, in terms of a business model, what everybody tries to do is <clears throat> everybody's pitching for artists to come to their venues and have have their um, concerts. Um, but we try to finish that it's always going to be right at the very beginning of our close season. So we essentially have completed our playing season. Then we essentially, we've, we've sprayed a pitch with a glyphosate then the flooring goes down. Then they host their concerts. They get a good crack at that. And again, that's that small proposal. I mean, you accept there potentially could be a challenge if you were to do something mid-season, but they need to understand the consequences and the costs of that. And nine times out of 10, once you've actually factored in that profit margin that you would have made of hosting that concert, you've lost most of it by repairing your pitch. <laughs> so essentially, it is yeah. almost uh, talk to yourself out of hosting the concert in the first place. So uh, we, we essentially what they do is that we'll spray off a glyphosate, they'll play the, they'll, they'll have their concerts, however many nights there are. Once the floor is lifted, we will essentially begin our close season renovations. So we strip it all off and then we'll just grow it all back in, fresh pitch ready for the new playing season. That's awesome because uh, it, it's definitely something crazy. I like, I remember putting it down. I was like, this is not okay. I'm freaking out <laughs> and I'm not in charge of anything. So. <laughs> uh no that's that's great because again we in pittsburgh we did um we had removed the sod and we put nothing down it was just the sand profile underneath it and we put it in beyonce's contract she had to pay for the field so it worked out just fine (laughs) yeah i'm sure she was she's not she's not shy of a a few dollars right i'd say not (laughs) Yeah, still working though. <laughs> money makes money, but yeah, no, I think uh, that again, you've, that, it's all down to that business model. If the business model makes sense, then yeah, you take that hit, and then again, you just get the opportunity to repair post that. But I think realistically, I think um, if you can make it work that you're not compromising that surface to the point where it's not actually ready for its primary objective. <laughs> then anybody that's running that venue is not doing their job properly. So don't get me wrong, you've got to maximise revenue. You want to make as much money as you possibly can. But why would you do that at the at, at the um, 
uh, and have the potential to have a negative impact on your most expensive assets, which are the players that are going to be taking the field. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, and again, like I say, in terms of the UK, I think the business model just about works. I know Carl at Wembley's is a bit more difficult for him um, with regards to how they do that. But by and large, they try and actually make sure that, that when they're not using it for, for sport, they, they have a block that it's being used for something else rather than having it broken down in through the season, the playing season itself. Um. If you could tell yourself one thing at the beginning of your career um, that would better prepare you for the road ahead, what would that be? <laughs> wow. There's a lot of things I could ask myself. <laughs> I should have I known that. I mean, the one th- I mean, I suppose the one thing that I've really learned in my 40 years, and if I'm taking it in terms of just work itself, um, you're never going to have a good day every day that that's and you have to just kind of take that and that's just one of those things you're just going to get smashed in the face and you and you just need to wipe the blood off get back up and crack on and i think it's so 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 easy just to kind of let i mean we're, we're in high pressure jobs right so we're, we're, we're not we're not having one of these where we just go home switch computer off and we don't worry about it until 9 30 the next day i mean i'll go home and then I check the um, check the check the data, the live data that we've got. I've got a camera, so I can check the camera to make sure my light rigs are still working. You're completely immersed in it, um, and you have to accept that fact. But for me, I think you're going to have dark days. You're going to have days where mentally you're absolutely exhausted and you've completely smashed yourself up. Um, you're not giving yourself the breaks that you deserve. You should get. And you should have. And I think one thing I've learned uh, as I've got older is probably more actually down to my mental health than anything else is just acknowledging the fact that you can't do everything. And it shouldn't be, you shouldn't put it on yourself that you have to do everything. So don't get me wrong. I think you working hard and having that ethic is a fine balance, but you don't want to get to that point where it turns into a dark space where it's it, you, the, the anxiety starts to take over. And then once you, the mind is a brilliant and wonderful tool, but it can chew you up proper if you let it. And I think having that ability just to be able to speak to somebody and acknowledge the fact that you can't do something, it's, it takes a brave man to do that and just actually just stand up and just go, do you know what? I can't do it. And I'm going to just take a step back here now and just, and one thing I would say is that that's not a full-time feeling. Like like life in general, it's it's full of ups and downs and you get nice plateaus for a little while and then something will go wrong and then you have a big old crash and then it all picks back up again. And I think for me, if I was talking to my younger self, I think it's just to acknowledge the fact that life can't be brilliant all the time. <laughs> it's just, you just got to learn that it's, but, but then you'd have to acknowledge that it's, it's not forever. I tend to find, I look back on it now and I'm thinking, well, yeah, okay, I've had some times in my life where it's just not been how I wanted it to be and um, I've not felt great about things, but overall, it's a, it's an absolute drop in the ocean with regards to the, the highs and the good feelings and everything else I have and it's that that you need to try and focus on more than anything else. And I think it helps to kind of bring balance and clarity to everything as well 
you have to have the lows to feel the highs, right? That's what they say. And it's true. It is true. I think you do have to have, right, everything's gone wrong. Um, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. I've been criticised for this. Um, and then you've just got to take it on the chin and you've just got to, right, I've just got to work it. I've just got to work the situation. I'm just going to work it out. I'm just going to, just going to work my way out of this. And that's my default. My default is to work my way out of things. And it's, like I say, it's, it's work today, but I think it's one of those that you definitely have to acknowledge that you can't do everything. Um, that would be my big thing to say to myself because I was one of those when I was younger. I was, I was still doing 70 hour weeks, but I was still going out every night and drinking. So you can't, you, you, you can't do that. You're enjoying life at the time, but you just can't, you can't sustain that. So it's uh, just being able to acknowledge that you need a different focus in life. I've had loads of conversations as well, really, with just having something other than work. And it's difficult in this job because obviously it chews up so much time. Um, but it's really important that you've got a focus other than work. So um, big change for me was when I became a father. I think when I became a dad for the first time, I mean, that was that was a proper flick the switch moment. It's just like, wow, it's just like really started to acknowledge now that it's just not all about work, but it's not only that though, but it repurposed what I was trying to do. So where I was doing everything for me and I wanted to be successful and I wanted to see how my life went and uh, aim, aim, aim as high as I possibly could. As soon as I had a family, I did everything for them then. So it just repurposed everything. It was just like, right, okay, now I know what I need to do. And it's, I want to be successful because I want them to have a good life. I want them to um, uh, also understand that by working hard, you're successful. There's no luck. There's no, sometimes there is an element of, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's the kind of saying we have over here, where it's just like, sometimes you don't need to know everything, but if you know the right people, you can get somewhere. Um, but for me, I'd like to see that my kids are looking at me and thinking, wow, dad's leaving at five o'clock in the morning and he's not coming back till seven o'clock at night and he's working in London and he's doing long hours and all the rest of it, but we've got a nice life. So I can see why he's doing what he's doing. It's like things don't just happen. I'm really desperate for my kids to understand that because I think they flick YouTube on and think you just have a house with a swimming pool just by blogging. So <laughs> trying to get them to understand that um, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Absolutely not. Blo I have no idea how we have gotten to the point where we make people who film their lives billionaires or millionaires, whatever they are right now. You know, it's insane to me. I don't know how that happened. Uh, no. I, I, I'm a, I'm an age now where I just can't quite comprehend it. I'm happy if I could just find any video on YouTube that actually it, it enriches me a little bit. But unfortunately, trying to fit through all the crap, it's hard work. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we sort of wrap up each podcast with this question uh especially with it being i mean we're i think we're four weeks away from our seniors graduating from high school um do you have any words of advice for our kids whether they're going for college university or if they're entering turf grass if they're entering a different type of workforce what would be your best words of advice and preparing them for what's out there entering the real world. Wow. Um, don't be scared to try. I think I'd rather try and fail um, than not try. 
uh, and be sat there thinking, well, I wish I, there's no point in thinking two years on. I wish, I wish I'd tried that. I wish I'd had the, I wish I was brave enough to make that step or make that decision. You can't get it right all the time. That's one thing you just need to acknowledge. It's just, you're not going to get everything right all the time. It's just not possible. So you just have to acknowledge there's going to be some failures, but I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. And I think that's with everything. So if you think there's a qualification out there that you've been asked to do that you think that they think is going to enrich you and you're too scared to, to, to try it, or if you're going to be given an experience to go and work abroad and you're too scared to leave home, try it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to go out there and you go, actually, yeah, this is crap as what I thought it was going to be. I'm going to go home. <laughs> it's not the end of the world, you know, but you never know. You might go out there and you think, Jesus, I could live here. Uh, this is this is the life of me. And before you know it, you're, you, you've made a, a step in your life that's, you're never going to, you're never going to get that to experience that unless you make that choice. So, if, yeah, I, I think for me is that don't be scared to try and that's with anything. Um, I, I, like I say, I think it's living with regret sometimes is the hardest thing than, than to not have tried and failed, if that makes sense. I think I'd rather have tried and failed. So, do you know what? I had a go at it and it didn't work out for me. It's, so, we just life's not over just because something didn't work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that, that for me, that, that, that's probably the, the, the bit of advice I'd give to, give, give to the kids. Absolutely incredible. We cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, it was an absolute blast um, to hear about everything, and we really can't thank you enough. No, you're thank welcome. You so much um, for being on. No problem. Yeah, I'm, uh, one thing I can do is talk. Um, I've plenty of time. That's one of the skill sets I've picked up where uh, I used to be a shy kid who didn't want to talk to anybody. But um, when I get in my flow, I'm quite difficult to um, and there's a few people that vouch for that. So you've just got to experience it. <laughs> again, we can't thank you enough. It, it really helps our kids and with everything we're trying to do. So again, thank you. Yeah, well, like I say, I'm, I, I'm on Twitter. So if you want to DM me or anything on that, I'm, uh, yeah, just feel free. I mean, I've got, uh, there's, uh, I've got no issues. If I can find the time to answer any other questions that people might have had that didn't want to ask or anything like that, then yeah, um, knock yourself out. I'm, I'm always, I always normally pick up my DMs, so.